Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things that we can do for people and a planet. My name's Kevin Fulton. I'm a professor at the University of Florida, one of your top 10 public universities. That's pretty cool. Well, today's podcast, we're going to talk with students, graduate students who have an interest in science, of course, but also an interest in sharing that science. I was approached by Dr. Sarah Evanja, and Sarah you may recognize as the director of the Cornell Alliance for Science. And the Cornell Alliance for Science is an organization that was established at Cornell University, an effort that was created to increase the literacy about uh, food insecurity and opportunity all over the world. There's a big emphasis on genetics, particularly some emphasis on biotechnology and the way that biotechnology may be deployed to solve specific issues in food security. Cornell is very active, or at least the Alliance for Science is uh, very active, and I suppose Cornell is too, but the Alliance for Science is very active in recruiting and training students in science communication. And what you're hearing today is three interviews, which were done by students, Andrew Katz, Bliss Betson, and Sarah Cuse. Uh, The three students participated in a workshop in San Diego right before the plant animal genome meetings. The students then were able to practice what they had learned in these boot camps or in these workshops. I always kind of weird calling it a boot camp, but but a workshop. by participating here on the podcast. So Sarah reached out to me and Paul Vincelli and asked, would you be willing to interview these students to let them get some practice in talking about the work? And of course, Paul and I were very happy to oblige. So what you'll hear today are three young scholars talking about their particular projects. And what's important to notice is their enthusiasm for the science, but also their enthusiasm for communicating the science. And I don't think that they're alone. I think the next generation of scientists have a very different opinion on what it means to be a scientist. It's not just about what you do in the lab, the papers you create, the grants that you earn. It's about how you share the science you do with a public that desperately needs to understand it. Enjoy today's podcast. And today we'll start out the podcast by talking to Andrew Katz. Now, Andrew Katz is a student at Colorado State University. Andrew, where are you in your current education? Uh, I'm just starting my fourth semester as a graduate student uh, with Dr. Stephen Pierce, and we work on wheat genetics. Okay, and in the wheat genetics area, uh, you have a rather challenging research question that you've taken on. What is the problem that you're trying to solve? 
Uh, the problem that we're trying to solve is this question of actually applying all of the great, wonderful biotech tools that have been generated over the last, uh, say, half century, uh, specifically uh, utilizing CRISPR-Cas9 technology uh, to validate some of our hypotheses uh, in the wheat genome. Um, so the one of the biggest challenges in wheat, for those that don't know, is wheat is a hexaploid species, means that there's uh, six genomes uh, within each cell. Um, there's uh, 21 chromosomes, um, and it's uh, we call it the A, B, and D genome, which represent three different subgenomes. Um, <laughs> where, where I hope did, that's enough the, information. Well, well, where did the where did the C genome go? This that's a great question. Uh, we're, we're we're not super sure. There is uh, some there are. <laughs> So there's a, a lot of different progenitors, uh, some wild relatives of wheat, uh, per se. And uh, the f- we kind of order things in the, in the way we discover them. And so the hybridizations of the A and the B and the D genome uh, were, were called as such. And I, I'm actually not quite sure where the C genome went. It's kind of like batteries. Oh, no, we, we have yeah. C batteries. We don't have B batteries. Yeah, well, anyway, I don't know. we're going off topic, but, <laughs> but well, so what exactly are you studying and, and, you know, what is the major barrier towards the research that you're trying to resolve? Uh, the major barrier uh, that I'm trying to figure out is how to get CRISPR-Cas9 into the wheat cell to do the genome editing. And uh, so in some species like Arabidopsis, you can just dip the flower into some agrobacterium. Uh, in rice, you can throw some seeds on some tissue culture and create callus. Uh, in, in wheat, it's, it's, it's what we call rec- a recalcitrant cop. It's, it's very difficult and, uh, to, to work with in a, in a tissue culture form that we can then use to apply biotechnology tools. And so what I've dived into is trying to screen and optimize different tissue culture techniques so that we can take some of these improved varieties of wheat, of wheat that is actually grown by farmers in Colorado and, um, try to figure out how can we apply biotechnology or if it's even possible to apply biotechnology uh, to these uh, improved varieties. And so the idea is that you're able to re- to regenerate the wheat, as we always say. And tissue culture, for those listeners who don't know a lot about this, it's kind of like a weird um, black art. I mean, it's as much art as it is science. You're trying to take a single cell and turn it into a group of cells that then can eventually give rise to the whole new plant, which means if you can get your construct, as we say, or the CRISPR-Cas9 gene into that, or Cas9 gene into that first cell, you can now generate a plant from that one cell where all of them share the same genetics. But it can be a challenging thing, particularly in monocots. And wheat, of course, is a monocot, which is, uh, has some other um, genomic issues. Have people been able to successfully transform wheat with any regularity? Uh, yes, uh, there is uh, Bob White, I guess, would be the, uh, the, the white lab rat of the wheat world. Uh, it's our model species um, and it's actually uh, fairly efficient in, in transformation when you compare it to wheat as a whole, as a species. Now, it's kind of a, an anomaly um, when you look at wheat at large, and uh, there's a very large difference in ability to transform wheat when you look at different varieties. If you look at one variety to another, 
uh, it can vary greatly in how easily they are transformed. And are you doing a, what are you doing that's different to try to get that transformation rate to increase? Uh, so what I have really tried is, uh, I guess we'll have to go back to my past a little bit. Uh, I was originally trained in monocot transformation in the species Brachypodium uh, distachyon, which is a, a model grass species. And, um, and we use a tissue culture method where we take small uh, embryos from the if, before the seeds mature, we take the embryos and we put them on a media with sugar and hormones. And um, we, using the hormones, we trick the plant into dividing and creating like an embryonic callus piece. Uh, I kind of uh, use the analogy. It's, it's kind of like plant stem cells. Uh, not exactly, but um, I think a lot of people have an idea of what stem cells are. And so once you have this tissue, you can then divide it into many pieces and then you change the formulation of the plant hormones and you can get single plantlets that have, are derived from single cells. And so in the wheat world, a lot of uh, people are still using uh, technology where we, we skip that, that callus step where we go from an embryo, we transform the embryo, and then we regenerate the plant from that embryo. Um, and what's difficult about that in terms of efficiency is that, you know, you, you have one shot at it. You have one embryo. And if that embryo doesn't regenerate uh, due to the technical difficulty of the situation, uh, then you, you've reduced your likelihood. So if you take the embryo and make the callus from one embryo, you can make a hundred callus, or if you wait a couple months, you, you can get a thousand callus. They grow exponentially. And then you've increased your opportunity, your chances of success uh, by, by a lot. <laughs> well, sure. Plus when you transform just that one embryo, are you getting a mosaic? Uh, you can, you can most definitely get a mosaic. Uh, people do use culturing methods to, to try to avoid that. Um, but that is uh, definitely a concern. So what? So when you're doing your work, are you doing something a little bit different? Maybe something that other people have uh, uh, have not thought about or have not applied. Well, I th right now we're really in the screening method, uh, the screening portion, and uh, that's where the the novelty lies right now. Uh, we're trying genotypes that um, you know were not that weren't around before when previous uh, wheat uh, tissue culture was being performed. Um, and we're really just trying to figure out, like you said before, it's it's just as much an, an art, a, a black art of tissue culture. And, uh, you know, I, you, you hear stories of how people had, you know, it, it was only this one, you know, one corner of the lab that you could possibly tissue culture this variety. Uh, so we're, we're definitely still in the beginnings and, and trying to figure out just uh, just what are the genotypes, the, the varieties that perform best and, uh, and take it one step at a time. Um, no, your, uh, your, your, your points are not lost on me. I, I'm a tissue culture guy too. And I, I, uh, I can transform stuff and get regeneration where nobody else can do it. Yeah. And I can show people how to do it and they go in the lab and it doesn't work. And I go, well, I, of course it works. Watch. And then I do it. it <laughs> but uh, you know, there are people in my lab who've done very well with it, but others just could never get it to go. 
So what do you have a whole series of genes, a candidate genes that you're ready to try to transform as soon as you get the system going? Uh, yeah, we're, we're getting there. So, uh, we are working, um, I'm, I'm a part of a team at the Pierce Lab. Uh, we work very closely with our wheat breeder uh, at CSU. And they, uh, obviously, they already have a, a lot of populations. Uh, they do things like genomic-wide um, association studies. Uh, they have very interesting populations that are segregating for interesting phenotypes. Um, so there's a, a lot in the pipeline. And, uh, but unfortunately, uh, the CRISPR revolution, as some may say, uh, has kind of really opened up a sore wound, which is uh, the limitations of plant tissue culture and plant transformation. And so uh, there's a lot of pressure right now to, um, to develop these techniques, become uh, efficient in these techniques, so that we can address this backlog of of CRISPR genes, uh, targets, and validation and basic research uh, that will really be enabled by better tissue culture methods. And so what is your long-term plan? Like, say, once you graduate and get out of uh, Colorado State, do you plan to stay in a tissue culture-related field or maybe uh, in gene editing overall? Uh, you know what? I I do have a, a very strong passion for for tissue culture and gene editing. Um, there's really nothing like holding a, a transformed plant in your hand. I, I'm 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 sure you have that feeling. You know, it's it's a plant that you know you worked really hard, you designed really well, and and you finally, after many months of of effort, have have a living thing in your hand. It's it's quite a feeling. Um, I think it's, I'm still very early in my uh, graduate studies and uh, I'm still testing out different things such as, you know, where I want to end up as a, as a career, but I'm very open to working in tissue culture for quite some time. Well, right now you're at the science communication camp and really working on honing your skills in science communication. And could you tell me a little bit about your experience there and maybe how that can be part of what you do going forward? Oh, Yeah. No, most definitely. It is, uh, it's quite interesting. So one of the activities that we had to do, uh, we're in beautiful San Diego right before the uh, Plant and Animal Genomics Conference. And so uh, one of the activities is where we went out and addressed the public and uh, to find out what the public knows about CRISPR and genome editing. And it was, uh, it was quite a, uh, you know, at first I was very nervous. It was, it was kind of scary going up to strangers on the boardwalk uh, and asking them if they had an opinion about genome editing. Um, and, uh, and it, it was, it was quite thrilling. And I think that, uh, as I move forward in my career, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's important to get out of your comfort zone. And, and we often as scientists talk to other scientists and have a community of scientists that we, uh, interact with. Um, uh, but there's plenty more people out here and, uh, and everyone's life is impacted by, uh, by biotechnology. And so it's important to, uh, to open up and have those conversations and, and not be afraid of, of speaking to the public. Now they're, they're desperately trying to figure out who they can trust. And uh, unfortunately, we haven't been in that space. And it's great that you're doing this. If people wanted to learn more about what you do or maybe follow you online, are you present in social media like on Twitter or Instagram? Oh, unfortunately, I'm not. That is, uh, it's uh, an area that I'm uh, actively trying to get better at. Uh, we do have a lab website. Uh, you can find us at Colorado State University uh, at the Pierce Lab. Uh, it should be a fairly easy Google search. 
Um, and you can find my work there. Yeah, you have to be careful. If you if you Google the Pierce Lab in Fort Collins, it takes you to a tattoo studio. Oh, does it? <laughs> no, there, there, there are plenty of tattoo studios in Fort Collins. No, it's, the other, it's the other kind of Pierce. <laughs> yeah. I just thought I'd throw that out there. I'm having fun today. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your time on this today. Good luck in all your studies and reach out if we can ever be of assistance. Maybe you should co-host a podcast sometime. So reach out if we can ever help you out. Thank you very much for your time. This is Paul Vincelli, occasional guest host on the Talking Biotech podcast. On this segment, we're going to speak with an MS candidate, a Master of Science candidate from Kansas State University. Her name is Bliss Betson. And uh, welcome to the Talking Biotech podcast, Bliss. Thank you for having me, Paul. So I I know that this particular disease that you're working with is, is really regarded as one of the most important threats to uh, food security and food production in in countries w- that rely on wheat. So um, I'm, I'm going to give you a chance to sp- explain a little bit about this. What tell us about the work you're you know what what issue are you seeking to address and give us some background. Of course. Um, so the the fungal gene, or excuse me, I'm just going to not say that. <laughs> okay. Um, so the, uh, the rust that I'm working with, it's a wheat stem rust, and it is identified as the UG99 race group. It was originally founded in Uganda in 1999. And uh, so basically, it has evaded a lot of the current resistance genes put in place for wheat stem rust. And uh, currently, throughout the past um, years that it has been ad- identified uh, plant breeders, geneticists, uh, plant pathologists, and uh, that kind of community have been uh, working to identify new resistance genes uh, that can be put in place to uh, battle this pathogen, and they have been successful. So there are several genes that have been identified for adult plant resistance to this pathogen, and I am particularly looking at one of the resistance genes that was founded to combat UG99. And uh, I'm basically studying uh, the pathosystem of SR35 and its copart, which is AVR-SR35, and then the variants that go along with AVR-SR35. Okay, so um, AVR-SR35, that's, um, all right, so, so let me just be sure I understand here. So SR35 is a gene in wheat that confers resistance to wheat stem rust. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Okay. So then what is AVR SR35? That's another code you, you stated, but uh, help us understand. What does that stand for? Of course. So SR is a, is a term for stem rust. Okay. And then AVR is a term used for avariance. So it's an avariance, avariance factor, um, a protein that has been um, in the fungal pathogen itself. Okay. And so why is that important from the standpoint of knowing what that does? Of course. So uh, basically, this, these two uh, proteins act together as a gene-for-gene interaction. And whenever they interact together, this creates a hypersensitive response. So whenever the uh, pathogen infects the wheat plant, um, it, it, this uh, SR35 recognizes this AVR SR35 of the fungi. Um, to create a hypersensitive response, which basically uh, consists of localized cell death. And it basically cuts off all resources 
for this uh, fungal growth. Right. Okay. So, yeah, that's a good explanation. And, and so I think about, you know, the hypersensitive response. It's a phrase that we, we know in, in plant pathology and use a lot. And basically uh, what I understand that to be is a, it's kind of like a, a, a suicide of a few cells of the plant that it sacrifices in order to, or as part of its arresting the growth of the wheat stem rust fungus. Is yes. that Yes, that's that's right. That's okay. Right. So, what what is your uh, how does your research relate relate to this? Basically, an, another th- before I move on, another thought that occurred to me is it's you're basically studying this sort of interplay of molecules between the parasite and the host to you know to either successfully invade the par- the host or for the host to successfully resist the infection. Is that yes. is that a good okay? Yes, so, that's right. So what is it you are doing and, you know, and with a little more depth now, now that we've sort of framed it for our audience, what is, it, what is the work you're doing with respect to SR35 and this interplay? Right. Well, as I stated before, uh, UG99, it has evolved um, and it continues to evolve. So something that my advisor likes to state is that uh, pathogens never sleep. Uh, yeah. this, this fungi never sleeps. And uh, it has the ability to, to evolve past uh, resistance genes that are set in place to combat this pathogen. And so whenever I look at the natural variants, the natural evolution of this pathogen, I have taken uh, 10 of the natural variants that are found in nature, which, are, which were collected from Africa and the Middle East, and I basically test them against SR35 to kind of visualize the viability of SR35 as a resistance gene that is put into place right now. And so how I like to kind of explain this is that I am, I'm bliss. And then I also have my siblings that come from a very large, large family. Mm-hmm. And so Paul, you know me as bliss. If I came up to you, we had this interaction. We're making this podcast together. Um, but if my sister came in the room and started talking to you about something, uh, you wouldn't know who she was. And so basically Hmm. that's the same way as this reaction between the resistance gene and the avirulence gene and all of its variants. So I could be AVR SR35 and you could be SR35 and then my sister could be a variant of myself. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of the same genetics, but we are not the same and you do not recognize her. Right. So, So that's kind of like what I am doing within my research. And uh, basically what I'm trying to figure out is what is the core, um, what is the core necessity for resistance? Uh, what nucleotides, what sequence is specifically required for that, for that interaction to take place? Okay. Boy, that's good. I like that. That's a very nice analogy. I've been working for, you know, my entire career kind of beginning really in the mid-80s in graduate school. Um, trying to find ways to convey the science of plant pathology uh, to different audiences. And I think you, you've come up with a very nice way to explain the evolution and the, and the generation of variants of a parasite that might allow it to overcome resistance genes. That's very good. Thank you. So what you're, what you're doing is you're trying to understand basically the ongoing evolution of, of this parasite, the uh, UG99's wheat stem rust parasite yes. isn't it yeah. yeah so it's whole race group yeah i'm trying i'm trying to de- identify those things yeah yeah 
Good. How far along are you in, in your work? I mean, are you... Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, so far, I guess I can go a little bit more into detail about that. So far, I have tested these variants that I have in place, um, and then I've come up with a few potential candidates. Um, so initial testing was done using the tobacco assay infiltration method. And so uh, basically with wheat stem rust, uh, the leaf the surface area is not very large. Mm-hmm. And so you're not able to see um, the hypersensitive response in an effective way. So basically you transform the uh, genes that you're working with and co-infiltrate them with agrobacterium uh, into tobacco to visualize this hypersensitive response to cell death that you're looking for. Uh, and if you have susceptibility, you, you won't see this hypersensitive response. But if you have resistance, you will see that hypersensitive response. And so basically that was our initial method of recognition. And then from there, we're doing um, RT-PCR and qPCR um, to kind of validate that research a little bit more. And, and that's pretty much where I'm at right now. Um, in addition to this, I would also like to um, do a little bit more for the community of people who are working with UG99 Race Group um, by creating tools to help identify new resistance genes um, so that they can effectively be put into place. Um, and then also I am collaborating with uh, some people in the USDA um, and other people at Kansas State University um, to kind of uh, sequence a reference genome for rust. Yeah, very good. So you're using tobacco as a, basically a plant model that'll, to allow you to test whether a, a particular um, variant of, of the wheat stem rust uh, fungus might be to test whether that might be able to infect a, a new resistance gene or overcome a resistance gene. Have I described that properly or, or is there a better way to describe that? that? I think there's a better way to describe it. Um, so, so like I was saying with SR35, um, I'm only working with the SR35 patho system. Mm-hmm. So I basically uh, pin two genes together. Um, so whenever I, um, I'm taking my genes that I'm working with, I order them, for, I order the sequence uh, from a company. I, the, DNA, I, the DNA sequence, sorry. What? Yes, yes. Okay. I, uh, so I order that um, as an oligonucleotide sequence uh, from a company. I transform them into E. coli, grow them okay. up, um, and then I transform E. coli into agrobacterium. And so I have my resistance gene, SR35, in an agrobacterium. Uh, okay. And then I also have all of my variants uh, transformed into agrobacterium okay. as well. So you're and working so, with the one, gene, the one gene from weed, SR35. And, um, yeah, okay, carry and, on. And then also all of the variants as well. And all so, the variants. Okay. So, yeah, so I do a co-infiltration into tobacco. So I um, mix my SR35 with each one of my variants um, in turn and infiltrate into tobacco. And this is a method that has been used in the past and is pretty reliable um, as it shows um, visually a great representation of effective hypersensitive response in in plants. Mm -hmm. So it's a way to kind of speed up the screening process to see if your SR35 will recognize Mm -hmm. a, a, a new invading parasite, one of the variants you're working with. Yes, that's right. Yay, I got it. <laughs> okay, good. So um, so one of the things you mentioned 
uh, in you know in, in one of the previous your previous interviews I've you know done a little homework to prepare so it, you and you talked about synthetic duplicates of the UG99 race so you're actually not working with live cultures of UG99 and I think you may have mentioned the, the, the possible risks of to our own crop right to here in the mm -hmm. United States so it makes sense that you would what is in terms that our listeners, will understand what is a synthetic duplicate i actually had not heard of this um until until i saw it in this article so yeah um i actually already mentioned it previously in this podcast um but i'm talking about the oligonucleotides that i'm ordering from from the uh the companies so i already have the sequence references uh for each of these variants and so instead of okay. um instead of having the rest for all of these variants. I just have the sequence, and I order those sequences from the company um, so that I can manipulate mm -hmm. them into into this system for tobacco assay infiltration. Um, so I'm actually sure. not not specifically working with uh, the rest that can be um, that can be put out into nature or anything like mm -hmm. that. Um, but if I if I were, then I would have to work in a different kind of facility that had a yeah. lot of uh, biosecurity. Uh, within that facility, because like like I stated er earlier, this uh, this fungal infection, this disease is all is uh, only in Africa and the Middle East as of right now. Right, and and as it, I, I know you mentioned earlier, it's it, it's uh, most weed varieties have would not be resistant, would not have resistance to this to the UG ninety nine or I guess related strains. Is that yeah yeah? It's uh, roughly ninety percent of the wheat varieties grown worldwide are susceptible to, to UG99. Mm, okay. So uh, what, um, you know, what, what can you tell our audience as far as looking forward? What do you, um, even not necessarily uh, speculative information, but what, what uh, do you anticipate, where do you anticipate this work might go or, or uh, what's, yeah, just give it, just give us something to look forward with. Yeah. Um, so I, as a master's student, I'm very proud of this research. Uh, it's uh, basically going towards improving a mechanistic understanding of UG99 and its pathosystems and how that's working. And I think this is uh, really important research for discovering new resistance genes. And I'm most excited about providing these tools that I stated um, to help kind of identify new resistance genes and help uh, geneticists and breeders and plant pathologists in this um, in this kind of uh, uh, aspect moving forward yeah. um, to, to put more resistance genes in place. Like I'm going to reiterate that um, not only does this pathogen never sleep, but it's a, it's a worldwide problem for every plant pathologist. <laughs> it seems like there's always new evolving pathogens out mm -hmm. there that, that are always affecting um, not only the agricultural community, but um, I think it's something that, anybody from like maybe a medical standpoint can also can also agree with mm. yeah yeah that's that's a good point to sort of wrap this up with you know is is the fact that really pathogens never stop potentially never stop evolving towards to overcome whatever resistance the plant puts puts up in in, in its way or that we may try to take advantage of as humans you know we're, mm -hmm. we're trying to take advantage of, of those resistance genes that we might find and the pathogen does never stops evolving to overcome those uh, resistance genes and therefore we need we can't stop either yeah that's that's right 
Yeah. Well, good. Hey, Bliss, thanks for your time. I, we, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us on the Talking Biotech podcast. And uh, with that, I'm going to pass on the baton to Dr. Folta. All right. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. Now, in this portion of the Talking Biotech podcast, we'll talk to Sarah Kuze, who's a graduate student at UC Davis in the Dukowski Lab. Um, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Wonderful to be on here. Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about the problem that you're looking to solve. Another question here in wheat. Well, I guess the the larger problem that everybody in the world is trying to tackle, whether you're working on wheat or rice or corn, is yield. And on a national collaborative level and through um, many international collaborations, the Dukovsky Lab and many other labs were collaborating together to basically dissect yield a many-gene trait into single genes. And so for my project, just like Andrew, we're working on trying to basically find one of these single genes that are really important to yield and trying to understand it, clone it, and maybe even incorporate it into a breeding program. And so the gene that you've been working on, or you've been led to, was identified by using um, what we call QTL analysis. But the genes that you're looking at have to do with spikelet number. And what is a spikelet? A spikelet is really an attachment point um, along an ear of wheat. So when you look at an ear of wheat, many people see kind of like a braid. And... um, each node on there is actually uh, a position where there are three between one and three flowers, and each one of those flowers can become seeds. So if you have 20 spikelets, you could have potentially 20 times three, 60 seeds. Okay, so spikelet number is directly related to yield because if you have more spikelets, you have more yield, right? Is that where we're going? Yes. Okay, and so what exactly have you learned in your research? Well, it's a, it's an interesting process because you you first start out with this trait, this you know, this characteristic that you look at on the physical plant and then you're trying to identify where in the genome is correlated or where the gene is that is responsible for that trait. And so um, I guess the, the mapping part is kind of like you're you're starting at a Google map level. You're starting at an, like maybe the global level. The global level is the genome. Then you figure out which nation or which chromosome is associated with your trait. And then you go down to the state level. And now I'm at, so to speak, the like the county and the street level of trying to figure out exactly which part of the genome is Uh, or which gene in the genome is responsible for my trait. But since you're, uh, since you have a, at least you have a roadmap, which is really cool because the wheat genome has been sequenced. So since you know, just kind of the streets in the county, do you have some candidates that you think are especially promising? Yeah. So I've been, I've narrowed down my entire candidate region or my region where I know my gene is in to about 25 candidate genes. And the way I know that there are approximately 25 in there is because we've done um, what we call an exome capture analysis. So we, through previous studies, know that there are 
we have a, a sequence genome and we know approximately which one, which part of the genomes, what part of the genome has genes in it. And I can just look at that region and kind of count how many I have left. Oh, I see. So th- that's pretty cool. So do you think that you'll be able to get to it by the time you're done with your graduate career? Well, in theory, since I have two of within those 25, you know, you can look at the characteristics of each one and kind of hedge your bets which one is the best one and which one is less likely. I should have figured out which gene is causing my trait within the next six months. And so once you know which gene it is, what do you do next? Well, that's just really the beginning. Um, we, there are many ways to, to check which gene is responsible for the trait. Um, the, I guess there are, three, there are three traditional methods, and you, to make sure your work is valid, you use at least two of them. The first one I'm already pursuing is we have a tilling database. So we have um, a, a mutant database of plants that have mutations that are sequenced. And so I know I now have two mutants mutants that have um, stop codon mutations in this candidate gene, meaning that in theory, this gene is turned off or broken. And I want to see if I have a broken version of this gene, does it change the number of spikelets per spike? This would be really strong evidence that this gene is the causal gene for spikelets per spike. Um, The other method, which Andy talked about, is using uh, CRISPR-Cas. Our lab is still working on that protocol. Andy has a lot more experience with CRISPR and our lab doesn't. So we're choosing the agrobacterium route. So I actually went into um, another wheat species uh, called monococcum and I found my candidate gene there and I, uh, I made a copy of it and I put it into... Um, another another uh, species of wheat called Kronos. It's like a red wheat, and I want to see if this new version of the gene will change spikelets per spike. Well, along that same line, you have a very wide natural variation in the number of spikelets. If you look at your candidate genes in those lines that vary for number of spikelets, do you see some sort of consistent trend that maybe ones that have low numbers of spikelets have some sort of variation in the expression of a gene or maybe even in the um, sequence of that gene that may give you hints as to where to start looking for the functional candidate? Well, that as well. Um, the, the challenge, though, with these, um, because I can't say exactly what my candidate gene is because... Um, that would be problematic for my, my future publication. But, um, <laughs> so I just, I'm like, it's, it's really hard because I really want to say what it is all the time. Um, but uh, the, the, the interesting thing is because these, a lot of the traits kind of monitoring or controlling like the core of flowering, very, very minute levels at um, the early spike development stage where this spike is at tinier than a a sliver of a fingernail. At that level is when this gene is very active and to accurately measure that and to, you know, collect tissue and measure the changes in um, expression is really hard to assess. So I'm, I'm pulling off that experiment right now, but um, it's, it's a really hard thing to measure and there's not a lot of existing data on that specific 
gene that I'm working on. Yeah, so no way through it except for through it, right? So, so what, what, yeah. what, what do you plan to do after you're done with your graduate career? Well, I actually want to leave academia and I want to be a science communicator. I feel like I'm not doing a very good job on this particular interview for my science communication. <laughs> but um, I... My, my main passion is working with farmers. I run a, I'm a lead student breeder for um, an organic project. I was a lead student pepper breeder. And um, my main passion is mentoring students in plant breeding and uh, teaching people about genetics. Um, so, I mean, and I, I love to run a, an institute where uh, it's a mentorship-based training and leadership. And so where people can learn about science and try to incorporate science into their life as a way of thinking and not just uh, a field of study. No, that's really good. And we need more of that. And I'm glad to hear you doing that. And anytime we can be of assistance here, let us know. I mean, you can come host, uh, co-host the podcast with me sometime, you know, pick out someone you'd like to talk to and let's do it. Because um, I, I think it's a great medium to be able to use um, any kind of media we can produce to help get out those messages. So, you know, that's... Uh, so you're welcome anytime. If people wanted to learn more about you or your program, are you present on social media anywhere? I'm present on LinkedIn, um, but I do have quite a few kind of short articles that I've published, and I'm planning on trying to get more active on Twitter. So if you would like to send me the URLs to those articles, I'll put them on the website that accompanies this particular episode so people can start to find you there. And, uh, and when you get on Twitter, send that information forward and I'll put that there as well. And thank you for listening to the podcast today. And I hope you find this episode as enlightening and exciting as I do, as the next generation of scientists really is excited to share the work they do and explain it in cohesive and very clear ways. If we can get more people involved in talking about the science we do, I think it changes a lot because there's not a scientist out there that doesn't complain about poor funding rates, a lack of resources and opportunities, or the frustrations of seeing their best work literally die on the vine and never get into the field or into the hands of somebody who desperately needs it. You know, that, that developing world farmer that could use that technology to overcome a challenge with uh, weather or insects or disease. So this is where it starts. It starts by our next generation of science scientists uh, training in how to talk about what they do in ways that make big impacts. So thanks, Andrew, Bliss, and Sarah. Best wishes going forward because this is the next generation of science. My name is Kevin Fulta. Thank you very much for listening. I know that you have many, many choices with respect to podcasts and really do appreciate your continued listenership and support. Uh, we are starting to grow again, which is really exciting. It says that that continued good delivery of a reasonable product. <laughs> I don't go out on a limb. Um, <laughs> I sure sell it, don't I? Uh, so yeah, good delivery of a reasonable product. Uh, I think it's something good, and it, it's, it's my passion and something I enjoy every week. So thank you for your reviews. Thank you for sharing this with somebody you think needs to hear it. And we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. 
Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.